what should the pro-lifers do now? And this morning they're waking up there. I mean, they're obviously, as you said, they're broken hearted. They're, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a massive setback. This is now the seventh ballot measure since Roe that has been lost by the pro-life side. First of all, start by telling me what you think that the pro-lifers can do in Ohio. So practically, I think we do have to still explore all legal options. I mean, even though it may seem like a done deal with this amendment being passed, I think the most important thing we can do is raise our voice for life. Well, welcome to the Ann and Phelan Scoop. We have some unfortunate news, which you've probably seen by now. Ohio voted last night, Tuesday, to add an amendment to its constitution enshrining abortion access as a right. We've been very interested in this ballot measure called Issue 1, Pro-Lifers Lost by Around 13 Points. And because of this ballot measure, we opened a crime scene photo exhibition of the Kermit Gosnell case. You'll remember Gosnell is a former abortion doctor who killed several women and thousands of babies at his clinic in Philadelphia, where he also did late-term abortion. Our exhibition ran in Columbus, Ohio for several weeks, just ending yesterday. Many people came and saw it and were able to confront the truth about abortion because we had pictures of some of the babies Gosnell killed babies of those same gestational ages that are now at risk in Ohio. But there's still hope, of course, and we're going to turn our, to our guest now to break it down uh, and to talk about the way forward. Um, you'll remember we uh, had Pastor Brian Williams, who's a pastor in Columbus, Ohio, who opened our exhibition, and he's one of the leading voices against issue one. He signed an open letter telling voters to vote against the issue with hundreds of other black pastors in Ohio. Um, so I want to just immediately say thank you, Pastor Brian, for joining us this morning. Um, what's the mood right now among the pro-life crowd over there? Well, um, thank you for having me this morning and uh, for your efforts to be a voice for life. Um, it means so much to our community. Uh, thank you for putting on that exhibit. But yeah, I mean, this morning, um, even really late last night when the projection was given that issue one would be passed, I think there's a mixture of emotions. I think on one hand, there is, of course, a natural sadness, uh, especially given the many hard working folks behind the scenes that did everything they could to try their best to get that message out there. But then there's also the only option, which is hope, you know. And so um, while this is clearly a setback on a legal side, um, we still have to look at the other options and the other ways that we can still communicate the message of life, you know, and so that's what I'm shifting my my focus toward, along with my pro-life comrades. Um, you know, even late last night, so many text messages coming in with broken heart emojis and just, you know, weeping tear-faced emojis. So yeah, it's, it's definitely painful. And, um, but we're resilient people. And uh, just as we saw Roe v. Wade overturned after, you know, nearly 50 years, we're going to fight and we're not giving up. And I think that message needs to be echoed loud and clear that this is not over. Uh, we're going to continue to speak up for babies. So, Why do you think the, the, the life lost to death it's in such a dramatic way? I mean, that's 13 point lead. How did they how are they winning on this issue? How are the, how is the pro death side winning on this issue? Well, I think that's a multifaceted answer. I think there was a lot of misinformation. Uh, the ad campaigns, I think, were effective, you know, and there was a lot more money being spent on that side to promote their message, which was filled with misinformation 
And honestly, I just think that uh, we did not um, we did not uh, mobilize long enough. I think that we should have had a longer kind of campaign. I think time was so crunched between the special election that happened in in, in August in in Ohio and this election in November that there wasn't much time to come up with a more robust strategy. But again. Um, at this point, hindsight being 2020, I think what I'm most tragically sad about is the sense of death is being normalized. And so mm -hmm. I think we just see death in so many different arenas in our culture that people have just become numb, you know, and I think so that's a moral crisis that also has to be confronted as well. What can ordinary people do now in Ohio, pro-lifers in Ohio, to what, what do they do right now and, and going forward? Because obviously the laws have changed dramatically. Now it is legal. It is legal in Ohio to have an abortion basically at any stage. The, the, the legal language that was used was very, very clever in, in, a, in a terrible way, in a, in a diabolical way. The language was clever that allows for an abortionist to decide, to, to decide what the word viable means to decide right. what word, you know, the health of the mother was allowed to have the broadest possible definition. What what should the pro-lifers do now? And this morning they're waking up there. I mean, they're obviously, as you said, they're broken hearted. They're, you know, it's 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 a it's a massive setback. And the context of it, of course, is that this is now the seventh ballot measure since Roe that has been lost by the pro-life side. Um, what can pro? What, what first of all start by telling me what you think that the pro-lifers can do in Ohio. So practically, I think we do have to still explore all legal options. I mean, even though it may seem like a done deal with this amendment being passed, I think it's worth investigating what other options may be out there to see what the likelihood of a repeal could be. I mean, I think it sounds completely unfeasible at this point, but it's at least worth exploring. Uh, those legal routes. But in the meantime, the most important thing we can do is raise our voice for life. You know, I think even myself, you know, with my whole, you know, pro-life journey, I've always looked at Roe, I always looked at Roe versus Wade as this Goliath, you know, or this mountain that stood in the way. And because of Roe, you know, we figured that'll never be overturned. We can't do anything. But what I realized while Roe was in place was that we still can talk to women. We can talk to men. We can get more of a ground level, grassroots level kind of approach to our message. And I think our message just has to be more clear. We have to share more stories of post-abortive, you know, stories of women. At our church on this past Sunday, I had six women, six black women, um, share their stories of abortion. And most of them had had multiple abortions and they told about the trauma, the depression and all that came on the, on the other side of their procedure. And just from sharing that, you know, to an audience of, you know, hundreds, there were dozens within that congregation who came forward. And so social media began to share their stories and people inboxing us saying, Hey, I was thinking about an abortion, but I've changed my mind. So I think, our focus has to kind of evolve from just the legal route to more of a person to person grassroots effort and hopefully shift the mentality um, of people on that level to consider life as the only viable option. And that's going to take, you know, some planning as well. But I think that if we were in another country where abortion access is unrestricted 
or if we were in another state, even that's more liberal leaning in across the United States, we, we'd still have to stand for life. So I think my, my focus is more, how do I speak to people before they even get in the situation? And once they get in the situation, when they realize they're pregnant, making sure that we are doing everything we can to support them, to make sure that abortion is just not even an option on the table. I'm just thinking now, I mean, obviously, given this this change in the law, I mean, you, you could have you could have a Gosnell in, in Ohio. Yeah. This, this is possible. You you went to the exhibition. Um, what were your what were your reflections on, on going on, on going to the exhibition? And do you think something like that might be effective in trying to change people's minds? Absolutely. In fact, the remarks I gave at the opening of the exhibition was I titled my remarks, The Power of a Picture. And I told my story of how I saw a picture as a college student of an aborted child, and that changed my life. It made me look at the issue through a different lens. So I think as much as it could be considered by some as shock factor, I mean, there's a reality factor is what it is that people are seeing the reality. And so I think things like uh, showing people the grotesque nature of what's actually taking place is jarring enough to have them shocked into reality. You know, and that's literally what happened with me. So I shared with the audience there that night about my journey. And it was interesting because one of the attendees at the exhibition was the guy, uh, his name is Mark Harrington, I believe. And he was the guy driving the bus that had the picture of that aborted baby that day I was on campus. And it was, you know, 17 years later and with tears in his eyes, he was just so thankful that that his effort to share that picture translated into my life standing for life. And uh, so I would never underestimate the power of those pictures as, as hard as it is to look at those images. We can't run from reality. And so I think there's much value in sharing those images as, to as many people as who can see them so that they can be more firm in their conviction. Yeah. So, I mean, that, well, thank you for that. I mean, you know, we're, it's been something on our minds, you know, for a long time that we should try and get these pictures out because they are, as you say, they're very, very powerful and they're unimpeachable. You know, these were shown in a court case, so nobody can say that they're, you know, from some kind of, you know, from the pro-life movement or anything like that. So Pastor Brian, what advice would you give to the states that are facing these ballot measures in 2024? We think there's about six or seven states so far that are, that are proposing to have abortion ballot initiatives what what advice would you give to them now early in november of 2023 i would say get started soon as possible with a life message and campaign have the people in position of authority the government officials and community leaders get rally as much early support as possible uh, before the ad campaigns kick in and the propaganda machine gets turning and i think again if we could have probably got started a lot sooner in Ohio, I think we could have maybe seen a different turnout. But I think another practical factor here is voter turnout. Um, I don't know what the final election result numbers are. I haven't checked this morning, but we had, I looked last night, roughly 8 million eligible voters in Ohio. And I think less than 50% turned out to vote. So mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a demographic issue where we have to get, where are these unengaged voters um, and get them to the polls. And I think, again, it's just, it's one of those things where the graphic nature of what we're actually talking about here has to be uncensored. So whether it's through visual aids, such as the Gosnell exhibit, or if it's just medical professionals graphically describing what are you actually doing? This is not, 
they try to make it seem like it's just a typical medical procedure or reproductive health care. And they're literally suctioning the brain of a baby out through a tube, a vacuum tube, injecting it with saline solution. I mean, this is a, these are graphic things that are murderous and it just has to be shared. I mean, so I, I would appeal to people of courage to speak out and to make your voice heard and don't wait till six weeks before the election to do it. Get started as soon as, I mean, as soon as January comes, commit your year to it. That's really interesting what you just said. And it really echoes with, and really resonates with me. I have to say, because um, when we attended the Gosnell trial, you know, there was the one, there was one piece of testimony that, that stuck with us and made us want to spend all these years we wrote, we wrote a book, we made a movie, we've had the exhibition, we had a play in New York, all because of one piece of testimony. And that testimony was the testimony of the abortion doctor, the legal yeah. abortion doctor, who was asked to explain, well, when you're doing a good abortion, tell us what it looks like. And the reason they made that happen during the trial was because it was so grotesque, so appalling, so shocking, so violent, that it made the murders that Gosnell committed seem like nothing, actually. You know, it actually trivialized, it trivialized, in fact, what he did because it was so extreme. And I remember this was, you know, a bit like you with the bus, actually. I mean, it was very, very similar with Phelan and I. We were like looking at each other going, OK, that's the, that piece of testimony. We have to get that piece of testimony out there. And we, we wow. you know, we made the movie and we said that that was the main thing we wanted in the movie. And, and I remember saying one time and it's kind of almost funny, but it really strikes me what you just said there, because I remember saying to Phelan, you know, no one's ever had that. That's never been said in a movie before. No one's ever had that language in a movie before. And I remember my husband kind of humorously saying, yeah, there might be a reason for that, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But we were very glad that we did include that so that people did know. And people were, you know, I, I know that the, the power of the movie continues. People continue to, to watch the movie. People see the movie. People write to us and say, oh, my God, I changed my mind. In an hour and a half, I changed my mind. So I think, I think you've got, I think you really... I'm really glad that you that you made that remark because I think that's actually, in some ways, I think that's what the the pro life movement have been scared of doing. Um, yeah, and they need they need to get away from that because the pro abortion side loves their euphemisms. Everything's euphemistic yeah. to them. Absolutely, yeah. And truth is, I mean, it is a Bible verse. I'm a pastor, so I have quite a scripture here. But you know, Please. Jesus said it, the truth it will make you free. You know, and I think anything that is true as uncomfortable as it may be to encounter it it liberates you know and so and it empowers as well i think what happened when i saw the picture was and i shared this at the exhi exhibition was that one i was jarred into the reality of what actually abortion is but then i felt responsible and empowered to do something about it and i think there are enough people out there who aren't just looking at pictures or videos or hearing stories for the sake of information or the sake of, you know, just random trivia that's going to motivate and mobilize a lot of people to stand up. You know, and I think there's plenty of examples in history like that, where once people were confronted with the truth of a situation, they begin to speak out against it from the American slave trade to civil rights here in the United States as well. When people saw black people being water hosed by the police officers and dogs being loosed on them on TV, then it went from, you know, just talking about civil rights to now 
whether you're white, black, yellow, red, let's all get together and make sure everyone has equal rights. I think the imagery is is important. So I thank you because, I mean, without these documentaries, without these exhibits, uh, people would just be left to speculate what they read in fine print. Well, thank you very much, Pastor. And again, we're so glad that you opened the exhibition and we're so glad you were able to join us this morning, even on such a sad day. But thank you for your, your words of hope. Amen. Thank you. And also on this week's show. Oh, yes. How a billionaire donor to the University of Pennsylvania uh, regrets his previous silence on issues and hopefully uh, the university is now regretting him speaking up. And the Washington Post reports on a very, very puzzling shocking. rise, shocking rise in homeschooling. Why ever would that be? They are completely puzzled and am, bewildered. I, I am shocked, shocked, shocked to find homeschooling shocked. going on in these premises. And we have more fun from Mark Stein's depositions. You've yes. asked and we will obviously you know, supply. What a great pleasure to to. To put Mark Stein on the show, actually. Yes. He's just in sparkling form. Yeah. Um, and Shakespeare knew everything. He even knew about cancel culture 500 years before it happened, before the modern iteration of it. So we stand by for a very moving Shakespearean soliloquy by a famous Hollywood actor about this mo- most modern of issues. Mm-hmm. And we have a recipe um, for turkey chili that I'm very happy to bring to you that uh, has a whole story connected to it and all kinds of drama, by the way, that was ensued in the, the creation of this said turkey chili. Drama? We'll, pardon? Drama? Yeah, there was drama. You don't remember the, the wounds, film. You don't remember the drama of your wife getting injured in the making of this turkey I, chili. I, 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 it was so traumatic, I think it's black. Okay, you've I've got... suppressed it. Okay, let's start by looking <coughs> at, let's look, let's look, let's start by looking at this story about yes. this billionaire donor. And, you know, the reason we're bringing you this, and this is from the Wall Street Journal, and I think the reason we're focusing on this is that, you know, this is a metaphor or, you know, or this is a symbol. A of, snapshot, it's a snapshot. A snap of what's happening all over the place. Yes, it's, it's so Israel, this is a story about Israel uh, and Hamas and what happened in Israel on October 7th. And it's it's an interview from, from the Wall Street Journal, and I urge you to go take out a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Actually, it's a pretty good paper. Read the uh, whole thing. Read the whole thing. But it's, it's, it's headlined, The Billionaire Donor Taking on His Alma Mater Over Anti-Semitism. Apollo CEO Mark Rowan wasn't vocal about social issues. Then Israel attacked, was attacked. So... It starts, you know, um, this is a, a precise of the of the of the article. It's not the full article. So, yeah, so it, it talks about how Mark Rowan donated 50 million to w- the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Isn't that right? Anne? It's not Penn State. It's, it's the University of Pennsylvania. Yes. And by the way, just to, just to interrupt there, Philem, and uh, we've yes. had some people in touch with us, by the way, because Philem and I apparently in the past have kind of, you confused know, so, confused or mixed up the two of, of Penn State and the University of Pennsylvania. And the, apparently the University of Pennsylvania is an Ivy League school, whereas Penn State is not. But anyway, Phelan, this 50 million gift that Mr. Rowan gave yes. to the Wharton School was the largest ever gift so, the business school So he's got. a grand fromage. But after Hamas attacked on October 7, uh, Rowan, the chief executive of private equity giant Apollo Global Management, went on television and said he's halting donations to his alma mater over its response to the conflict and anti-Semitism on campus. He, uh, so and this is part of an ongoing uh, revolt alumni revolt against the school and the president uh, calling for the the president and the board of trustees to step down because of their response yeah and so what set rowan and other very large donors off was penn's response to the violence in israel this is the article you're reading yeah. and i'm reading for the wall street journal article on october 10th president president the penn president liz mcgill 
called the assault horrific, but didn't explicitly condemn Hamas. The donors had already been upset about what they saw as a growing, growing anti-Semitism on the campus and the school's response to it. I don't think the intent was for it to be forceful, Rowan says, of the response to the attacks. I don't think the university gives a crap to be candid. That's rather candid of them, yes, by the way. Yes. So then, <clears throat> then the president, McGill, she issued a follow-up statement condemning Hamas, I think after pressure from large donors like Rowan. And uh, she's going to announce a new plan to combat anti-Semitism on campus. And uh, Rowan started, you know, and, and Rowan, they, they give a little pen portrait of Rowan. He started focusing on philanthropy in his 50s. And this is significant. He also chairs an organization that helps fund a significant network of schools in Israel called Darkest Schools. And uh, so he, he, when he joined the board of trustees, and, you know, uh, this is, he's actually, he's quite honest. He he didn't, he wasn't as vigilant as he should have been. He noticed with the board of trustees, and all the board, and uh, all the years I was a trustee, we never had a debate. We never had a discussion. We never made a hard decision. And he contrasts that with his day-to-day work. And I, I, this I is just something... Think that, I think that's an incredible quote, by the way. You know, I just think that, you know, just to go back on that. So, you you, you know, have somebody of his stature on this board, somebody mm-hmm. that's in the cut and thrust of the world. Obviously, there's a lot of things happening at you know, the University of Pennsylvania. And in all the years I was trustee, we never had a debate. We never had a discussion. We never made a hard decision. Like, what now? It's very interesting. We, we've talked about this before, personally, Anne, about how how don't how people become millionaires, become really, really successful by being data driven, by demanding results, by by demanding a return on investment, right? Um, which is a good thing, and then they give money to char they give money charitably, and have no make no demands, make no demands, make but also charities promise something. Don't deliver, and they and the people and the con- people continue to give. It's it's just they seem to have a different <clears throat> part of their brain for charitable giving. We we are five hundred one c three by the way. If you want to donate uh, on on reported society dot com, but we actually pride ourselves on not over promising uh, and not under delivering. If we say we're going to do over delivering, but, but oh sorry, not under promising and, and over, uh, trying to over deliver and trying to do exactly what we say on the tin. Yes. So unfortunately, when we if we're looking for money, I think uh, unfortunately we we go in and we're quite honest. We think we can do this, we can do this, we can't do that, you know. And whereas people go in and promise the world, don't deliver, and are shameless about it. But anyway, that's our little private beef. Bug but, bear. Yes. But um, so after the after the attack, I think uh, yeah, he he started this fundraising for the darkest schools. Um, this is my favorite. This is my favorite part of the article. I wanted to read this. Okay, part of the okay, article. you go ahead. So he, he, yeah. So when he got into philanthropy, I'll set it up again. When he got into, when Mr. Rowan got into philanthropy in his fifties, he set up uh, things in Israel called the Darka schools, which were uh, schools for gift. I, I'm not sure what they were. Some kind of school network in Israel. So after the Hamas attacks, and go ahead. Rowan watched President McGill post on Instagram. No, no, stop, 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 stop. Okay. Oh, sorry, I've done it wrong. No. After the Hamas attacks, Rowan started a fundraising campaign for the a new fundraising campaign for the darker schools. And the push raised millions of dollars for emergency financial help for displaced students. Nearly forty graduates and students were killed by Hamas, said Jill Perg, CEO of the schools. Yeah. So he's looking at these schools. He's funding forty. 40 graduates and students of these schools that he's heavily involved in are dead, killed, murdered, gone. 
you know, in the most brutal way. And then a bit we like. Yeah, so and then cut, cut to, you know, if, if this was a movie, cut to the scene of President McGill, the president of the University of Pennsylvania, posting on Instagram uh, about her dog. Can you imagine how what a blow that was to him to see that, that that's where her head was at? Three days after the attacks then, you know, then subsequently, three days after the attacks, she said, we are devastated by the horrific assault on Israel by Hamas that targeted civilians and the taking of hostages over the weekend. But that was only when the pressure started. That was only when the pressure started. When Ruined her, her initial thing was, oh, look, my dog's doing a cute thing. Whilst students, you know, students across the world were being murdered uh, at, at, at a music festival. You know, graduate graduate students, university students, just like the ones at UPenn. But she thought it was better. To, it was better to uh, post about her dog. He Rowan fired off an op-ed to the Penn School newspaper. He wrote he regretted not doing more to change the direction of the school as a trustee. Uh, so he went on. Then he went on CNBC. And well, I, the paper, yeah, the paper wasn't published immediately. Right. So then he went on. Can C- I read, he, can he, I read yes. this one? I know you're done. Okay, all right, go ahead. So I love this line. This is what he said on CB, CNBC. Microaggressions are condemned with extreme moral outrage. Uh, yet violence, and particularly violence against Jews, anti-Semitism, seems to have found a place of tolerance on the campus. And that is actually the key to so much. And I put that in, I bolded it out to read out. You know, people are getting suspended, expelled, uh, cancelled yeah. on the campus for having Mexican night and Taco Tuesday and for having a bad fancy dresses or saying or using the wrong words uh microaggressions and, and you think about what a microaggression is it's so small you have to search for it it's it's not there you have to look for it you find it kind of the clue is in the word micro yeah, yeah. but outright and public and violence not just anti-semitism violence against jews it has oh we're all in favor of free speech then so and then it goes on to say, the article goes on to say, other major Penn donors, including John Huntsman, we discussed John Huntsman in the past um, in relation to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, John, who previous presidential um, hopeful, John Huntsman, who basically said that's the last check we'll sign. But other donors, you know, and it's, in, it's kind of an incres- a very impressive bunch. John Huntsman Jr., Mr. Lauder, as in Estee Lauder to you and me, by yes. the way, and C- Dick Wolf, the creator of Law and Order. Dum, 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 dum. We should put the music in there. Dum, but dum. Dick Wolf, I mean, this is, this, is, this is a very high level and very, very wealthy group of people who have announced, all of them have announced plans to halt or reconsider donations over the issue. I have to say, and I said this the last time when we talked about Huntsman and his, you know, his statement that he's, you know, that's the last check the Huntsman family are going to be signing. I ho- and of course, what happened then was, you know, then other statements were made by the college to try yeah. to to try to the right the wrong. But, you know, I really hope they stick by their guns. Didn't we meet someone recently and we asked who knows him? We met some, or maybe you were, I met someone recently who, who knows Who knew Huntsman? And I said, you think Huntsman will... Will back the, now. It will be all nice now that they've kind of come out and uh, issued a condemnatory statement. This person said, "No, no, not Huntsman." Oh, okay. Not Huntsman. I think the Rowan then talks about how he's getting emails, dozens of emails a day, um, or fifty to hundred emails a day, uh, from the administration, uh, from people at the university, saying they're getting anti-Semitic attacks. They're being they're they're made to feel unwelcome. I mean, it's a it is not a good place for Jews. The University of Pennsylvania, but also the American campus is not a good place for Jews. And I don't know 
what you do with that. I don't know what you do with that information. I, I think I, somebody like Mr. Rowan, however, who has obviously made a fortune being very brilliant and, you know, thinking about things. And now the last lines of this story from the Wall Street Journal said he's keeping a close track of people he's heard from. So he's cre- and he's now got apparently a, a list of about 7000 people that he's in touch with because of this very issue. I'd like to think that people like him and Lauder and Huntsman and, you know, and and Dick Wolf, for that matter, might, you know, start to do things, very interesting things um, in order to defend the Jews um, and in order to to fight against anti-Semitism. And just on a personal note to say that, you know, we spent um, last Friday Shabbat dinner with dear friends. I won't get into too many specifics, but... um, a wonderful Shabbat dinner that we go to very often here in Los Angeles with very dear friends and we consider them basically family and I spoke to the the wife in the f- of the family the wife of the rabbi um, at the end of the meal and it was really extraordinary I said to her how you know how are you doing just the two of us were chatting in the kitchen and she said you know, before all this happened, she said, you know, and people, she said her husband and herself, the rabbi and herself would have a joke. And the joke was, you know, when somebody would say, how are you doing? She'd say, we're doing good, you know, for Jews. And, you know, she kind of laughed and said they got a good laugh out of that for years. And then she said, now, now when people ask, she said, we're not doing good for Jews. We're not doing good. Um, and her, she was saying that she's in a WhatsApp group and so many friends that she has, their young people have been called up um, for service. In, in Israel. In Israel. Um, and she's just, in com- she's completely stunned and she's completely stunned by people's reaction. And, and, and the lady, she works in, I, you know, I won't get into where she works, but she works with a variety of people. And she was saying that there's, there's a, a Jewish gentleman that she works with. And she said she really likes to work with him because there's no small talk between them. She said, and she, cause she's not fit for it. She's not fit to have any small talk with people. She said, I don't want to talk about Halloween. She didn't want to talk about Halloween. She didn't want to talk about anything else. And that she said he was the one person really out of this large group that really understood how she felt. Um, and we're, we're seeing that and we're hearing that from Jewish friends all over the place. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a moment, it's an inflection point, I think, because, you know, th- there's a sudden realization Oh my God! This is what this is what you really think of me, you know. I mean, it's mm. very, very, very shocking for um, the Jewish friends we have that have discovered people that they thought they knew they didn't really know at all. Um, and it's it's an awful it's an awful time. And I would urge anyone out there to get in touch with your Jewish friends and just check in on them, make sure they're doing okay, because it's a it's a terrible time. I think people, or those of us who are not Jewish, are actually reeling from this and everyday reading um, particularly on social media on, t- on Twitter etc reading the stories you know that are coming out it's, it's, it's extremely upsetting um, so you can imagine for people who are Jewish and I just said to Phelan on the way over you know when you think of like somewhere like Ireland they, you know they talk about if something happens in Ireland you know you'll have a friend of a friend of a friend who knows somebody but the Jewish population is not huge you know and you think this is these are two degrees or one degree of separation from something horrific. These yeah. people know these people that this has happened to, so um, it's an awful time. It's an awful time for people. Anyway, we'd go on to something that's not as not as awful. I mean, it's yes. just it's awful, and we're not leave, we're not going to be leaving this story anytime soon. Yeah, um, we are very fact, very 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 focused on watch it. this space. In fact, watch this space. Okay, homeschooling. So this is this is a, we kind of thought this was kind of a funny story. Kind of you know, well, in some ways, Washington Post. The fact that Washington Post actually decided to actually report on this, um, they've done a, they've done a, like a survey to look at the the state of homeschooling across the United States, and they've discovered shock horror. Oh my God, my God. 
knock me down with a feather. They have discovered that homeschooling has, you know, exploded since mm-hmm. since COVID, that it exploded during COVID and it has not returned to pre-COVID numbers. And they're kind of, and the Washington Post are going, hmm, I wonder why. And what's really interesting is it's, This explosion is happening all over the place, by the way, but also included in places where the school districts have good results, where the schools have good results. So it's like, oh, it's interesting. So you're taking your kids out of school, even out of a school where the results are kind of good. Hmm. Oh, dear. Now, Phelan, I don't know what to say to that. But there may be, would it be now that there'd be another reason altogether to be taking a child out of school? What do you think there, Phelan? Are you suggesting that encouraging children to self-mutilate and declare that uh, the girls are actually boys and not tell their parents, have the law passed that you don't have to tell their parents that your child is self-harming. You think that and other related uh, usurpations of of parents and destruction of childhood, that that might encourage children to take their children out of the cesspit of the American education system. And do you also think that uh, after two years in these places where the good schools are, i.e. liberal white places, where the, the teachers' unions stayed out of school the longest, uh, when they realised teachers didn't care about their students and didn't um, and, and wanted to stick them at home in front of a computer, realised, well, if they don't care about my child that much, I'm going to do it myself. I'll care a lot more. So, uh, I mean, if, if your teachers don't take education seriously, why would you? I mean... Up and, uh, you know, they're now bringing, coin- in, in the UK, if you take your child out of school for a cheap holiday, right, because holidays, are, you know, you, you can go to prison. That was the idea. And then they turned around and took children out of school in the UK for two years, for a year. And it's like, well, then, so what's the difference? So um, it's kind of funny. I like this paragraph from the Washington Post story, by the way. I, I really do like this because, you know, you know, because they do have a real difficulty trying to work out what exactly happened. Because why would you ever want to have your child removed from this government run institution? Um, you know, and, and, and here's how they here's how they get around. It. And I just love like you talk about weasel words and you talk about playing with language. So here, here's what they say when they try to get to the reasons. Concerns about school shootings bullying and the general quality of the school environment, intractable problems, some of which school officials have limited power to solve, mm. were among the top, were among the, the top. top reasons, mm-hmm. right? That's which is a little bit vague, right? It's a bit For vague, homeschooling yeah. cited by parents in the Washington Post um, school poll earlier this year. Many also, many, you know, yes. why don't we get, that is my point, no, this is exactly my point, Philip, in a, in a story that's all about data, why don't you tell me what many means? Why don't you, why don't you give us a number on many? Because here's what, cause here's, why don't you give us a meaning uh, um, what is among the top Oh, no, no, no. I'm not missing anything here, Phil. That's the reason I'm highlighting this paragraph. Many, you see, many also said they feared the intrusion. And this is well into the story, by the way. They feared the intrusion of politics into public education, a worry unlikely to recede amid amid arguments over how sexual identity, black history and other subjects are handled in the classroom. And so that's the nub of the story, of course, basically. But they're not even going to dig dive, do a dig, a big dive into that, which actually would 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 be giving us some really interesting information yes. but no no they're not going to do that they don't want to do that cause, cause no, they, no. the reason they don't want to do it is because they've been giving us some really inter- interesting information and just to, and just to give you a sense of this because I think it's worth looking at the, uh, the, the one of the statistics that they that they cite I think it really is worth it just to realise what an explosion this is based on the figures the growth so basically let me sorry let me go back here the National Centre for Education Statistics reported in 2019 before homeschooling's dramatic expansion that there were 1.5 million 
million kids. By the way, which is quite a lot. Yeah. Being homeschooled in the United States, the last official federal estimate. Based on that figure and the growth since then in states that track homeschooling, the Post estimates that there are now between 1.9 and 2.7 million homeschooled children in the United States, which is a lot, which mm-hmm. is an awful lot. Um now, talking, of ho- thing, talking of homeschooling. Talking of homeschooling. Actually, that's a very good one, Phil. Nice segue there, by the way. Yes. As you'll remember from Mark's, from, you know, we, we give you a couple of extracts from Mark Stein's extraordinary, wonderful performance of his depositions, by the way, last week. And one of the parts that we had in that, which I think, I think a lot of you enjoyed, was um, where the lawyers for Michael Mann were trying to kind of suggest, basically, that, that, Michael, that Mark Stein is a bit of a charlatan, that he doesn't, you know, he's a bit of an ignoramus. He just, well, sure, what would he know? And why would he be questioning this extraordinary man this doctor of science you know PhD and and, and a number of Mm -hmm. other acronyms right so they had this whole thing about you're a dropout from high school you know this dropout from high school thing you know no he's not a dropout of high school and then they had a whole thing about you know graduating did you graduate high school and as Mark Stein said you know this is more of the over credentialed um, situation that you have in the United States where you know as he said his three year old graduated from preschool Michael Mann Professor Dr. Michael Mann created the hockey stick which showed temperature to be flat and suddenly it spiked when when man industrialized and americans came along and we're all to blame and we all need to stop industrializing and become socialists basically so he he was man was then found to be behaving in really unethical behavior having really unethical behavior in the climate gate emails that were leaked the university of the penn state university uh, did a independent did an investigation into those emails and and found that he'd done nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong. Then a couple of years later, it emerged that Jerry Sandusky was convicted of abusing children uh, at at the at the university. They had also been told about him in advance, done an in, independent investigation, and found him to be entirely innocent. Only he was convicted a year later. The people who found him innocent were then and covered up for him were then. Uh, received uh, prison sentences uh, after being convicted for cover-up. But it turns out that those people who covered up for Jerry Sandusky also were heavily involved in the investigation of Michael Mann. So the reason they're being sued, Mark Stein is being sued, is because he said, if you would cover up for... He said that in uh, in 2012, in, like in June 2012, if you would cover up for uh, a, a child abuser... Why wouldn't you cover up for your lead professor? If you're going to do something as bad as that, it's much lesser evil uh, to do to cover up. And he was making that point. You can't trust the exoneration of Michael Mann. Cause the, so that was in June 2012. However, they did the discovery of Michael Mann's emails. And it turns out that Michael Mann was discussing this very point a good six months, in fact, on December, in December 2011 was discussing this very point because a journalist, a scurrilous, unethical, unacceptable, indefensible journalist had written almost the same article six months earlier. And that journalist was one Anne McElhinney. So yes, so Anne could have been sued by Michael Mann. Why she wasn't sued, I'll come to in a minute, actually. But um, here's a taster of what Anne wrote. So what are these two, Michael Mann, and the headline is Jerry Sandusky and Michael Mann, much in common. So what have these two men got in common? Well, both have worked for Penn State and both have been the subject of recent controversy. And she talks about what Jerry Sandusky was and how Michael Mann had been alleged to have 
uh, messed with the, the data. And they have one other thing in common. They were both accused of, of wrongdoing, but exonerated by an internal Penn State inquiry. And uh, so th- this article was written by Anne after a grand jury had had said, like, th- this internal inquiry was a cover-up and the people who, who covered up for it should be charged with perjury and covering up child abuse. And Anne goes on saying that everyone is innocent and proven guilty. But these officials admit they were told by a member of staff that Sandusky was sexually abusing a young man while naked in the shower. He was spotted. He was he was seen doing this. And uh, th- this was reported to him. But somehow they managed to clear him. And just as they cleared Michael Mann. And, uh, you know, there's a new batch of emails were released, Climate, Climate Gate 2.0, which believe, showed even his colleagues believed that the man's work was had flaws, it was deficient. Uh, so to the last part of it is, now I don't want to compare Michael Mann to an alleged child abuser, Jerry Sandusky, this is what Anne McElhenney is saying. What is worth pointing out, however, is that Penn State apparently covered up child rape to protect their reputation. If they did that for Sandusky, it seems clear and Climategate 2.0 confirms that their internal inquiry into Michael Mann was worthless. And it's worth seeing what further climate shenanigans they're covering up. And there was a whole conversation then between somebody forwarded, uh, Miles Grant, some soy boy, forwarded to some group, some global warming group. This may be the saddest plea for attention I've ever seen since Huntsman flip-flop four hours ago, but still, I don't know what that, that's some. <laughs> and then Michael Mann, no, Joe Rom, Joe sure. Rom. Never heard of him. Yeah, he's a climate guru, you know, um, wrote to, to Michael Mann with one word. Sickening. You're sickening now. Oh. You're sickening. So that's the kind of people you're hanging with, folks. I know, I know, I know. Sickening. Let's remind ourselves, let's remind ourselves at the, uh, about the hockey stick and let's hear Mark Stein now explain um, what was wrong with the hockey stick. And the title of the article is Where Rising Hot Air Hits Cold Hard Facts. And your discussion here, the hockey stick, and you talk about the resultant graph looks like a long bungalow tacked onto the side of the Empire State Building. You see that? Yes. And that's what you're referring to as the hockey stick graph. Yes, that's correct. And the reason that you believe it is incorrect or, or uh, not formatted properly is because it uses incompatible data sets, right? Projection. Um, yeah, that's what I say there, incompatible sets of data. Right. One is temperature records and the other are proxy records, right? Correct. And this, you have maintained this position this position that the hockey stick graph is fraudulent for that reason from that period of time all the way up to the present, correct? Well, I maintain my position uh, since that Telegraph article 19 and a half years ago, uh, but the, the basis for its fraudulence expressed more generally is that it does not demonstrate what it purports to demonstrate. And the incompatible sets of data I referenced there, what uh, my friend uh, 
Jennifer Marohasi, who's a scientist at uh, Queensland Central University in Australia, what uh, Professor Marohasi says is like sticking an apple on the end of a banana, or which I call stapling the Empire State Building to a very long bungalow, is, uh, is only a part of that. But the fraudulence of the stick I have maintained since in public uh, since that piece in April 2001. I, I, the reason I think he, he didn't sue you, Anne, is because oh, right. you have no money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and because he's not interested in, you know, in uh, they wanted to get, they wanted to bring Mark Stein down. They wanted to bring the CEI down because Mark's code of the work of the CEI. They wanted to bring uh, National Review down. They wanted, you know, there was no point in going after you because you had no money and, you, you know, Okay. What well, I mean, apart from the fact that you're correct as well, by the way, but um, so what? What else are we doing? And just before we leave Mark Stein, because I think and I think this will be the last piece from the depositions. And as I said, you can go to Stein online and get and listen to all of the depositions. Um, and it really is worth it. It is very very entertaining. I'd highly recommend it. Um, but this, just to give you another taste of how how wonderful Mark is and how brave and courageous and fun mostly fun he is how great and light he is in you know this is a very heavy situation that's gone on for over a decade and here he is being just fabulous um and it's basically mark responding to the charge that he had called michael mann a sleazy charlatan and a worthless piece of garbage just listen to how brilliantly he turns it around and by the way he's representing himself let's have a listen uh mr stein uh, exhibit 47, do you see that big climate sleazy charlatan? Yeah. Correct. And you're referring to Dr. Mann as the sleazy charlatan? Um, well, actually, uh, I believe sleazy and charlatan were both words of uh, one of uh, Mr. Mann's uh, scientific critics. So I believe that's actually a... Uh, reference to uh, the contents of the book. Okay, and you also in this article refer to him as a worthless piece of garbage, correct? Where is that? Oh yeah, oh uh, yeah, so Michael Mann is a sleazy charlatan. That is quoted halfway down page three. Um, that is quote. So that is a quotation. What was the other thing you were asking me about? Uh, calling Michael Mann a, and his science a worthless piece of garbage. Now, where do I say that? Two. Page two. Correct. Uh, no, I actually say that's not me saying he's a worthless piece of garbage. And, and again, for I don't know whether you have the rule of completion down here, but uh, I would then, I would like to act actually correct you and enter what it actually says. Thousands of eminent scientists around the world dismiss man and his science as a worthless piece of garbage. Uh, and I've quoted some of them to you previously, as you know. Um, uh, but even one notes that uh, even man's uh, co-authors on uh, MBH uh, have uh, have problems uh, with him, but uh, that's that thousand. Uh, what I'm not saying he's a worthless piece of garbage. That's rather brusque for my tastes. 
Um, but thousands of uh, eminent scientists have said that or words to that effect. Well, if you just look up two lines uh, from quoting the eminent scientists, you also say that Michael Mann and his science are worthless pieces of garbage, correct? Oh no, someone else is actually saying he's a worthless piece of garbage there. And you'll note that I follow that characterization, but then uh, refer to uh, his uh, retweeting uh, of, a, uh, of a completely filthy, scurrilous, disgusting post in which he says that his professional colleague, a very eminent scientist, Judith Curry, is literally uh, having sex with me. Uh, Dr. Curry is a happily uh, married woman, and uh, there is, throughout the tight little Anglo-American climate cartel, a very creepy and disturbing misogynistic character, of which man is by far the worst example, whether you're talking at the light end of the scale when, for example, Tamsin Edwards, a Welsh scientist who's, who supports 80% of what man supports. Nevertheless, he's extremely condescending in mansplaining to her if she ever ventures to disagree with him. So we have that on the mildest end, something which... Uh, is itself indicative of at least a condescension and light misogyny to the absolutely filthy stuff, uh, the, the filthy charge uh, he amplifies and lets go viral to all his doting man boys that Dr. Curry and I are in the sack together. He should be ashamed of that. And frankly, worthless piece of garbage is letting him off lightly on that. Thank you. I just, I, you know, it, it speaks for itself. Well, we we'll can't, there's, there's not much to say more. It's just fabulous. We'll go through it. Maybe we'll play some more next week. I mean, I, you, could, you could just keep playing this uh, until... Yeah, I think people do really enjoy it, and it is amazing. And as I said, go to Stein Online and support Mark. By the way, there's lots of things you can do. You can buy a hockey stick. The other thing that happened the other day was I got um, a message from Douglas Murray, uh, the wonderful Douglas Murray, um, who... Yeah, the commentator, writer. The commentator, writer, writer uh, raconteur. I mean, very, very brilliant. And, I would, you know, I'd urge people all to follow Douglas Murray he has a really wonderful substack where he does you know funny enough he's got a lot in common with Mark Stein by the way because Douglas Murray as the I remember you and I used to have this conversation film about people who didn't have a hinterland and people who do have a hinterland and interestingly a lot a lot of conservative politicians particularly seem to be absent um, a hinterland yes. um, but somebody like um, like Douglas Murray has my god does he have a hinterland like, he has a huge interest in literature and one of the things he does in his substack is I think it's once a week on a Sunday he has you know a piece of literature that he really loves but yeah. anyway I was having a correspondence with him and he wrote to me recently and said you know wondered if I had missed this extraordinary thing that just happened I hadn't missed it but well, I was glad that he reminded me because I thought you know what we need to bring this yes. to a conscious let, level let's go to the background so Kevin Spacey uh, Hollywood actor, um, you know, friend of Bill Clinton, friend of Tony Blair, probably no friend of the show. Um, uh, politically. Politically. Um, but he was cancelled, basically, for allegedly sexually, attempting to sexually assault a 14-year-old. And the, the, the case, the, the allegations came out and it was, it was seemed to be a, a slam dunk. I just accidentally got interested in this story through reading an article in an obscure uh, legal magazine 
Not many people know that he was completely exonerated at the New Not York. Not once. No, no. I'm just saying he was completely exonerated at the New York trial, right? Okay. Um, and we decided to do a podcast on that because he was completely cancelled. Then he was exonerated. Not only that, he was exonerated in, an, in, an, in a California case. Then he was exonerated in a Boston, Massachusetts case uh, allegations. And then he was exonerated in this New York case. Then, as our podcast was coming out, he was on trial, a criminal trial in the UK for complainants. Mm -hmm. Again, when you listen to the opening day's uh, arguments, you just assumed he was guilty. Then the, the cases were just fell up, apart uh, one by one. And we were there every day of the trial to, to hear, ex to watch this extraordinary, you know, drama unfold and particularly be there by the way on the last day when yeah and this 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 me too madness there's a me too madness a moral panic and people innocent people are being accused of doing things 30 years ago and they have no way of defending themselves interestingly kevin spacey had a way of defending himself because he's a pack rat but uh, he even kept phones from two from the early 2000s that proved he was he wasn't where he, where they said he was. But we did a podcast, the Kevin Spacey trial unfiltered. And, and I just checked today, Philip, to see, you know, this is, you know, this is what the public who have come and listened to the Kevin, yes. the Kevin Spacey unfiltered podcast trial on the Kevin Spacey trial unfiltered mm -hmm. podcast. Here's what they said. I mean, the, the most recent one. Absolutely fantastic. Unbelievable how a man's career was ruined by false accusations and, and pinned as guilty before the trial. Great to see the truth come out in the end. The podcast was so good. I got through it in one weekend. The next guy says, the next person says, there are few stories of truth coming out lately in our society. Anne and Phelan and the associate did a great job of showing how intelligent people on a jury could come up with a verdict that anyone listening could agree with. Um, and, you know, the left, you know, excellent production. The truth shall set you the free. The left eat their own. Uh, the left eat their own. Yeah. Binge worthy. This was an amazing podcast. So well presented and did a fabulous job of narrating. That's me, by the way. I ended up binge listening in two days. This matters whether you like Kevin Spacey or not, because when we allow people to lie and then sue people because of movements like Me Too, without even looking at the facts, everyone loses. The next victim could be you. Um, and there's loads and loads more like that. But um, so we would we would urge you to to listen to the podcast. Go to anywhere that you get yeah. podcasts, and you'll go to Kevin Spacey trial unfiltered. The Kevin Spacey trial unfiltered. Yeah. Um, so, the, so the, Douglas Murray was giving a lecture in the UK about cancel culture. So let's just play the excerpt that we think is really important and stand by for a special guest towards the end. And it's a short enough clip, but you will not, you will really. Yeah, hang on, till the, hang on till the end. Yes. In an era of cancellation and defenestration, we sometimes forget that we cannot go on like this and also that we've been here before. We know this because our greatest writers and artists have addressed this question in their own times. When Roger was going through his own battle with the shallows, I often thought of Shakespeare's rarely performed but great play, Timon of Athens. Timon has the whole world before him. He's surrounded by friends and admirers. He's been generous to all. Yet he falls on hard times in the city. And when he does, absolutely everyone deserts him. He's left 
with nothing and nobody and risks being filled with despair and rage. It doesn't help that he's shadowed by the cynical philosopher Epimantus, who has warned him that just such a desertion might one day occur. I adore this scene and should like, in closing, to read it. But I'm not a professional actor. So I'd like to invite someone to the stage who is. A former Cameron Mackintosh professor of contemporary theater here at Oxford, one of the great actors of his generation, somebody I'm very proud to call a friend, Kevin Spacey. Why dost thou seek me out? Why dost thou seek me out, Apermantis? Thou art a fool, whom fortune's tender arm with favor never clasped, but bred a dog, a mangy dog. Hadst thou, like us, from our first swath, proceeded in the sweet degrees that this brief world affords, to such as may the passive drugs of it freely commend, thou wouldst have plunged thyself in general riot, melted down thy youth in different beds of lust, and never learned the icy precepts of respect, but followed the sugared game before thee. But myself, who had the world as my confectionery, the world the mouths, the tongues, the eyes, and the hearts of men at duty more than I could frame employment, that numberless upon me stuck as the leaves do on the oak, and have with one winter's brush fallen from their boughs and left me open naked for every storm that blows. A beastly ambition that the gods do grant thee to attain to. If that were the lion, the fox would beguile thee. If that were a lamb, the fox would eat thee. If that were the fox, the lion would suspect thee when, perchance, thou hadst been accused by the ass. And were thou the ass, <laughs> thou wouldst be tormented by thy dullness. And still thou livest as a breakfast to the wolf. And were thou a wolf, thy greediness would afflict thee. And oft thou shouldst hazard thy life for thy dinner. Wert thou a unicorn? Pride and wrath would confound thee, and oft thou shouldst hazard thy life for thy dinner. Wert thou a bear? Thou wouldst be killed by the horse. Wert thou a horse? Thou wouldst be seized by the leopard. Wert thou a leopard that were germane to the lion? All the spots of thy kindred would serve as jurors on thy life. 
jurors on thy life. And all thy safety were emotion, and all thy defense absence. What beast couldst thou be that were not subject to a beast? And what a beast thou art already, that seest not thy loss in transformation. Away, thou issue of a mangy dog, away, thou tedious fool, beast, toad, rogue, rogue, rogue. I am sick of this false world and will love it not. I just think there was something absolutely miraculous, as in, like, from God, about Shakespeare. Yeah. Because Shakespeare, and I don't understand it, and, I've, and I also had this conversation with Douglas Murray, where, you know, how is it possible that this guy from, where was he from, Film in England? Uh, like, you know, Worcester, Stratford, or the, you know, uh, Lancashire or whatever. Oh, well, you know, Shakespeare, Warwickshire? No. Yeah, Warwickshire. Actually, you know what? I think it was Warwickshire. Shakespeare, who seemed to just know absolutely everything about the human condition. And I think I was telling somebody else about this and, and, and they made the point, very, very good point, you know. Shakespeare never went to Denmark, you know. He never went to, to Venice. Venice. He was never in any of these places and yet he wrote about the very essence of the human condition and obviously this performance you've just seen of with Kevin Spacey um, talking about cancel culture, you know, in the words of Shakespeare, absolutely tremendous and obviously the tragedy here is that this man has been exonerated now in courthouse after courthouse after courthouse in multiple multiple jurisdictions and his life is still over and he's still cancelled and he still doesn't get to to perform and I think film you told me the story um, and you'll remember it better even recently some you know uh, movie oh, yeah. producers had put him in tiny, tiny microscopic. Put his voice on his a voice on, on, on a phone a sh- on, a, on a show on a, on a movie. I think I thought it was, it was on a phone, like his voice. A, on a f- and uh, the a venue cancelled the premiere because they were disgusted to have him. He, his voice even in the same room as our staff, and it's like, do you realise, like, you know, when I was young, uh, leftists, by the way, were supported exonerating people. That was the whole thing. Yeah. They, they led, the, you know, the, the, innocent, mis, the, innocent, the, mis, the innocence the, the project, project. Uh, the, the miscarriage of justice project. And now it seems to be we're, we're going to um, destroy people, uh, even if they've been exonerated in a court of law, in, in four courts of law. So. And now we're coming to a recipe. I know we haven't had a recipe for forever, so I'm um, apologies for that. But, you know, anyway, this one attracted me, by the way. So this is in the Wall Street. Sorry, this is in the New York Times. And I have to say, it's the one thing about the New York Times that I do really like is the recipe section. However, on this occasion, I feel like the New York Times um, extended its lying um, business into, oh. into the recipe area. And here's and here's why, so, Philip. So, and so, you can, here's so why, are you accusing this? Are you saying this is disinformation or, I'll tell you or why. is it misinformation? I'll tell you why. So they say turkey chili. You can see the thing I'm putting up there. This is from the New York Times. Turkey chili, and they're saying total time, 35 minutes. The other thing that they have underneath that is the rating. And that was what attracted me as well. So 14,697 people give this recipe a five-star rating. However, there are 1,680 community notes uh, on this same recipe. And the funny thing about the, the community notes is they're in complete contrast to the five-star ratings. Because basically every one of the community notes says don't do the recipe the way that it's written. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do the recipe the way that it's written and now I can agree with all the people who um, created the community notes. You're agreeing with the New York Times readership, are you? I am. It's shocking. 
So and the other thing, so you know when they say thirty five minutes, I think that's fine. Yeah, thirty five minutes. You know what they don't take account for? They don't take account for the number of ingredients. There was an enormous number of ingredients in this particular chili, and I did add a couple myself. But there was an enormous number, and I'm just showing you there. There's a photograph showing you all the ingredients. I mean, that's a lot of ingredients. There's turkey, there's onions, garlic, red pepper, celery, carrots, jalapeno, um, fresh oregano, bay leaves, chili powder cumin, tomatoes, chicken broth, red kidney beans, shredded cheddar, sour cream and sliced lime as a garnish optional, which I didn't have. I mean, that's a lot of ingredients. And one thing I will say, because I kind of ran over there, the ingredients, but one of the ingredients obviously is um, jalapeno. And this will remind Philem of the injury that happened to his wife that he obviously completely forgot about. I made the completely rookie error of chopping that old jalapeno and coring it and divining it and taking out the seeds without wearing gloves. To which I got what is now known, and I've now learned, what's called jalapeno hands. Jalapeno hands is a burning sensation that you have in your hands for maybe two days for after chopping a jalapeno yes. without protection. I used aloe vera, which it just drank it up. Queen. Do not do that. You need to wear gloves or use a knife and fork. But anyway, let's let's. What, let's so what get I've done show is on the, let's get the chili into the pot. Come I'll on. show you how it was made, following the recipe, and I'll tell you what you need to do to make it better. <laughs> <laughs> and back in the kitchen. <coughs> okay. What the recipe suggests is everything is in the one pot, by the mm-hmm. way. You heat the oil over in a very heavy pot. That's a Dutch oven. You can mm. see it there. Add the, and, you, and you start. So I've actually changed it. So when you go to the show notes, by the way, and when you go to the website to look for the recipe. On reportofstorysociety.com. I've already changed the recipe to, to reflect the way it should be done. So according to the New York Times, you should start by browning the meat separately. Brown the meat and then into the meat you throw in the onions, garlic, sweet pepper, jalapeno, mm-hmm. uh, cook all that down. And it's all very, very mm-hmm. simple, by the way. So you do all that. And then after that, you put in the oregano, the bay leaves, the chili powder and the cumin. Again, in the recipe, it said three tablespoons of chili powder. I think that's a lot. And I think anyone who has a sensitivity to heat, you could you could have that, actually. Do you know what I mean? You really could. Uh, and then There's cumin. a lot of heat in it. There was a lot of heat in it. Now, Phelan was finding it a little bit challenging now. Stir to blend and cook for about five minutes. Then you add the tomatoes. You can see me doing that there. Add the tomatoes, the chicken broth, the salt and pepper to taste and bring to a boil and then reduce that heat down and simmer that for about 15 minutes. And I would say again, and uh, I was cooking with a very good friend of mine and she and I both agreed that the 15 minutes is not long enough. I would let that cook a little bit longer than that. Mm. Then you add the red kidney beans that have been drained. (laughs) Put the beans in there, fabulous. And cook again for about 10 minutes. Again, I'd cook it longer than that. And then you serve it up. Now, it does look very well there. Look at it now, what it looks like when Mm -hmm. it's served up with big lumps of cheddar on top of it. Sour cream, which definitely is needed for people who can't cope with the heat. And you could put a lime wedge. We didn't. I would say to you now, it is much better the next day. And it would be much better if you didn't do it the way the New York Times suggests. And what you should do is you put all the vegetables in first and caramelize them before you add the meat. And actually, the other thing I think is don't bother. You know, obviously, it's very attractive to do everything in the one pot. But you know what? Don't bother with that. Get a skillet and brown the meat separately in the skillet and then add the skillet, uh, the skilleted browned meat into the vegetable mix. And by doing that and caramelizing those vegetables, you're going to get an awful lot more flavor. Yes, Mm -hmm. Phelan, would you like to say something about that now? No, no, I'm I, I... 
I agree with uh, just don't forget the gloves. Um, don't scratch your eye afterwards. Oh. Um, the chili was delicious. The chili yeah. was delicious. And it's healthy, by the way. It is it's a healthy, healthy dish. And it's good for the environment. Is it? It's probably not. Oh, I don't think it's good no. for the environment. Well, that, that's an extra bonus. You know, We never do anything that's good for the environment yes, in our house. I, 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 I want several um, trees to die. Uh, that's right. Or, you know, that's right, yeah. Uh, I, yes. At least one species to go extinct. We're not, happy unless there's a lot, we're not happy unless there's a lot of toxins in the kitchen. Yes. Yes. So we come to the We're end of the show. We're getting a new cooker. We're getting a new stove. We are getting a new co- stove because uh, the stove, the actual cooker, cooker, whatever they call it. And by the way, that's range. a really, it's, a, it's a really funny thing. When we went to buy a new cooker, to realise that our language, the massive language difficulties, because what we call an oven is not what's called here. And there was like words like range and stove and all these words. So anyway, we eventually worked it out, but we actually had to go directly to Costco to get the cooker. So we will report on how the cooker works out. I have a question. Go on ahead with your question, Dylan. So, you can buy a range or a cooker for $4,000 and $5,000 and $3,000. We you, didn't. Just so you know. And you can buy one for less than $1,000. That's what we did. Would people write in in the YouTube comments? And explain. Well, tell me. What are you getting for the extra $4,000? Extra two or three. Th- are we being penny wise and pound foolish, as they say in the UK? Are we, you know... It's a, that 5000 is the price of a car film. My first car was less yes, than that. Yes. But then if you sat in the back seat of my first car, you'd get a wet bottom. And I don't know where the water came from. Yes. So... But it's true. I, are we being... Are we... No, are, we're not. I bet it'll be fabulous. And it's from Costco. So if nothing, if it doesn't work out, we can just send it back. Okay. Are you sure we can send it back? Oh, I think you can send it back. It comes with a warranty for two years. So how does that fit in with the, the Costco thing? Well, I think in t- within two years, Phil, we'll decide whether or not we like it. Yeah, well, but a warranty is only for fixing things. It just says two-year warranty, right? No, but you're allowed to bring things back to Costco you, that you say you just don't a- like electronic anymore. Electronic devices? Everything. Every, you brought back You brought back that Zumba. What was it called? Rumba. Rumba. The Rumba, which didn't suit our house because there's too many levels. Okay, enough. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will be talking to you. Yes. Bye. Bye.